Let us pray. Almighty God, come and be with us and draw us near to yourself. Fill us with your spirit that your word might fill us and that your word might transform us, that your word might enable us more and more to follow after our Lord Jesus. Enable us, O Lord, to hear your word and to be changed by it, that we would become faithful servants who follow after, who follow after you. We ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In recent years, I began reading a series of books with my kids that's a fairly popular children's story. It's kind of a fantasy series. It's about rabbits fighting against birds of prey and the wolves of the forest. And in the beginning of this book, it's called the Green Ember series, at the beginning of this book are, is this small family. And there's a brother and sister, Pickett and Heather. Early on, they're separated from their parents because the wolves come and attack. They don't understand what's going on. All they know is that the wolves and the birds of prey have conquered everything in the forest, in the woods. And they live in fear. And so they run and they hide and they escape. And they eventually find themselves in a place of refuge. But Pickett is ashamed of himself. He couldn't do anything to save his sister. He couldn't do anything to help her. Others had to come in and rescue them. He was unable to do anything, and because of that, he came and went into a dark place, a place where he was brooding and blaming everyone else for his failures. He refused to recognize that it was simply he was just unable. He was too young. He was too weak. He wasn't trained in fighting yet. But he blamed everyone else and thought, well, I could have done something if it hadn't been for the other ones who came and helped us. <coughs> and through this early part of this book, he strove against doing the right thing, against recognizing his own inability. It wasn't until he met an old grizzly rabbit soldier named Helmer who began to apprentice him, who began to mentor him, who took him on and began training him on how to fight and how to be a true soldier, a warrior. And in that picket begins changing. He begins growing and he takes up the charge when the wolves come and attack again. When they find the, when the wolves discover the refuge and they come and attack, he is able to stand up and go out and fight against them because he's been trained and he's been taught and he has begun striving to do the right thing and seeing that he was broken to begin with, that he was the one who was in the wrong for blaming everyone else. That is just simply a case of he was not ready yet. But through training and through guidance, through hardship, he has been shaped and made and enabled to follow and to lead other rabbits into battle and to go on and save many rabbits that day in that battle at the end of that book. I won't reveal any more about the story than that. Maybe you'll go out and find it and read it. We're looking forward to a new book coming out soon by this author, and the kids have loved it. And the story, as I said, intrigues me in that regard, especially with Pickett in this first book as he develops. But it's, in many ways, a picture of the Christian life, that we 
have to be trained and taught in order to move forward. We have to be shaped and made into the kind of people who will be in the kingdom of God. It's not an automatic placement in the kingdom, but it is one where we are brought in. We are redeemed into this kingdom. And thus, because we are redeemed, we are then enabled to follow and to become the kind of people that God desires us to be. Jesus calls it striving to enter through the narrow door. That is the walk of salvation, this denial of self, and that's what Jesus is calling us to today. That we must strive and we must abandon that which came before. And we must follow after our Lord Jesus in the striving. And the striving will lead through a narrow way, a narrow door. As Jesus was journeying toward Jerusalem, he had someone come to him and ask, Will those who are saved be few? It seems like a good theological question, but it's not really because this person is concerned about who's going to get saved. There may have been in that time, probably was, a sense of only the Jews were going to be saved. All of those who are descendants of Abraham will be saved and the rest of the world will be lost. And so in that sense, there would be very few saved because only the Jews would be saved. And maybe he's questioning that. Maybe he's wrestling with it. Or maybe he's looking for vindication in his faith that I'll go to this, this good teacher, this well-known teacher, this one who's claiming to be Messiah, and I'll pose the question to him, will there only be a few saved at the end? But Jesus does not directly answer that question. He speaks of the narrow door, the narrow way that one must strive to enter through. For I tell you, he says, many will seek to enter and will not be able. The striving that Jesus mentions here is a word that puts into mind wrestling. Not wrestling like we have on our American television, but in the classical way. Maybe more like grappling with one another. Think about with the boys, when I wrestle with them, I get down on the ground and I put out my hands and they charge at me and I grab them by the hands and we push back and forth and try to get the other one down and they're trying to knock me over. We get locked in a struggle, back and forth, trying to get the other one off balance so we can overtake him, so that that one can be overtaken who's knocked over. I think that's a good picture of what Jesus is talking about here when he says, strive to enter the narrow door, to enter through that narrow door, that narrow way that is placed before us. Because every fiber of your being is pushing back and resisting against the nature that is bound and determined to throw you off balance and pin you to the ground. That's what our sin nature is trying to do. As we strive, as we wrestle against it, it is trying to knock us over. And if we aren't striving, then it is knocking us over. If we aren't pushing back against our fleshly nature, it will overtake us and overcome us. And not only that, is it the flesh that we're wrestling with, but even the devil and his minions and the wicked world and the fallen world around us are all pushing back against us. Our nature is already predisposed towards sin. It wants to sin. It wants to make itself the center of existence, and you throw into that the devil and his minions and the sinful fallen world, the broken world around us, and we are truly hard up against it. 
But nonetheless, we strive. But why do we strive? Are we striving from our own power, from our own strength? If we are, then we will fail. We will lose if we are striving in our own strength. Because eventually our own strength will fail. And it'll say, well, it's okay. It'll justify all kinds of disobediences when we strive with our own abilities and our own strength against ourselves. We'll give an appearance of striving even. But we'll only fall eventually more and more. And our striving will come less and less. As Yahweh said to Cain, sin is crouching at our door, at your door, and is crouching at us. It is waiting to bring us down. In our own strength, we cannot resist it. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, for the work of Yahweh on our behalf that stretches all the way back to before Abraham, to before when he was even born, but there in our, in our Old Testament reading, we get a picture of the gospel in the Old Testament as Abram is, is struggling with his faith, is struggling to know what is God going to do? How is he going to fulfill these promises? I have followed you out here into the middle of nowhere. Where is my son that was promised? I have a servant who inherit all that is mine. But God comes to him and says, look at the stars your children will outnumber these stars. They will outnumber the sands on the seashore. You will be made into a great nation, Abram. And he calls him to bring a sacrifice. And he brings forth this sacrifice, splitting the animals in half, save for the birds. And he sits and waits. But what happens while he waits? He begins to slumber. He begins to enter into a deep meditative state. And he begins to feel the darkness all around, to feel the dread all around him. And in the midst of that, he hears a prophecy from Yahweh, speaking of Abram's children going down into Egypt and being there for 400 years, but nonetheless, them coming out as a great nation. Egypt herself being struck down by Yahweh. And then, after all of this prophecy, Abram looks up and he sees the fiery pot. He sees God himself walking in the midst of the sacrifice. The sacrifice that has been split down the middle and broken in half. In those days, to do that, have that kind of sacrifice is a covenantal sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that establishes a covenant between two people. But in the normal cases, both people would walk through in between the sacrifices, saying that they were both committed to fulfilling this covenant that is being made, this treaty agreement. And if one fails, then the other has the right to literally chop them in half. And here Yahweh walks in the midst of the sacrifice himself, keeping Abraham from coming into it, putting him under this deep slumber, this deep inability. And Yahweh says, I will accomplish what I have promised. And thus God gives us grace. He accomplishes His will. He brings about His promises in us, just as He did in Abram. Giving Him a son, and out of that son, another son. 
and then grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren in abundance, growing him into a nation. A nation who is to follow Yahweh. To strive toward that narrow door because they had been given the path to that narrow door. And God was a working. God was accomplishing it. But Israel failed in many ways. Not all of Israel strove through that narrow door. As Jesus goes on to describe in these other verses, 25 through 30, it's like when the master of the house closes the door and people begin showing up, beating on the door, wanting to be let in. He says, the master says, I don't know you. Go away. The door is locked. It's too late. And they'll say, we, what, we ate with you. We drank with you. You taught in our streets. And he'll say, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me. And they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth because of that. Because people assumed and presumed upon salvation. They thought, well, we know who of Jesus. We're good to go. And that is the picture here of the Jews in this moment, that they're hearing Jesus teach, but they are not receiving that teaching. They're seeing him in their streets. They're even getting to sit down and eat with him. But they're not receiving what he's really saying. They're not understanding. They're not seeing. They're not processing his truthfulness. God is giving them grace by teaching them through Jesus. He's working to bring grace into their lives, but yet they resist. Their hearts remain unenlightened, though the grace of God continually comes to them through the Word of God. God's Word won't flinch in revealing God's will to us. It pushes us to see that brokenness within. That's its job. But on the flip side, the Word of God, the grace of God revealing to us the brokenness within will inflame that very brokenness, inflame that sinful nature so that it begins to gain strength to resist against us. And I think partly that's what's happening here for the Jews. That is, Jesus is bringing them the truthfulness of God. Their sinful natures are rising up against Him. They are pushing back against the reality of what God is doing. And many will come from all over the earth. Many will come from all over the earth who aren't Jews. Who have received, who have laid hold of the reality of what Jesus is doing. Who have entered into a true relation with him. Not just an outward relationship, not just a superficial relationship. They don't assume salvation merely by a superficial relationship of having seen Jesus or heard about Jesus. These are people who lay hold of the life-giving word that they have been presented with. They come before Jesus and they rejoice in His goodness and His mercy. They rejoice in the work that He has done and lay hold of it. They don't presume upon their salvation that just simply, I had a great experience once with Jesus and that's good to go. I walked and prayed a prayer once. That's good, right? These people who come from the east and the west and the north and the south have laid hold of the reality of Jesus. They don't presume upon salvation because they experience something. They continue to pursue Jesus and to look for Him and to cling to Him in everything that they do, building on that previous experience, yes, but never looking at that as though that's all that was necessary. That is but a beginning 
And we build upon that by continuing to come to Jesus, by continuing to confess, by continuing to pray, by continuing to receive his grace through the sacraments and through hearing his word. But then I think there are those who assume too little. They lack that kind of preeminent experience. They just kind of fall back on just being around enough to catch on. They hear Jesus but don't really listen. They see Jesus put before them, but they don't pay attention. They sit down even with Jesus, but aren't engaged in the reality of who he is. They assume that just kind of being in the circle is enough. This tiny bit that they encounter. They assume too little. They lay hold of too little. They don't come into the center of the circle. They don't enter in completely with themselves. But all of it comes down to not clinging to Jesus, not laying hold of the reality in front of us, being satisfied with one great experience or satisfied with a bunch of tiny little ones that don't change us at all. The reality is we are called to strive, to pursue, to wrestle against what we are in ourselves by the strength and the grace that Jesus has given us, by the renewal and the transformation that we've received. We don't just step back and flippantly say, well, I'm a sinner, so it's okay if I don't really pay attention to Jesus or really follow what Scripture's told me to do. You all know I'm not one for morbid introspection. But there is objective introspection. There is that reality of being challenged by the Word, by hearing the Ten Commandments over and over and letting them affect you of seeing where there is failure, where there is actual sin, and thus being enabled to confess it, to recognize that maybe I'm not worshiping the right God, maybe I'm not desiring the right things within, maybe I'm not leading the right kind of life that the law says I'm supposed to live, and we let that shape us and let that drive us to Jesus, to drive us to confession and repentance. Without that word, Revealing to us our sin, we keep going in the way. We can't just say it's okay that I'm a sinner because God has brought transformation and brought Jesus to change us. And that's what Lent should be revealing to us little by little, more and more, is to question, to cause us to question, how seriously have I received Jesus? Does his renewal of my heart cause me to repent? Or do I resist that renewal continually and always return to my own pig slop? Do I see my sin as sin? And does seeing that sin as sin make me want to turn away from it, or does it make me want it even more? Do I simply see it and live in it, not striving against it, striving in the transformation that has been given through Jesus, through his indwelling spirit, through his giving me a new heart that desires and loves God, which leads to a transformed will and a transformed mind? But here, to cover the rest of what happens in our gospel text, we see a feigned warning after this. We see a warning from the Pharisees that is the perfect example of these people who think that it's just good enough to have seen Jesus. From the Pharisees, they come to him and says, Herod's trying to kill you. Get out of here. You see, Jesus was still in that Galilean, Perea area. He was still traveling toward Jerusalem, but he was not out of the district of Herod Antipas yet. And so these Pharisees come with a feigned warning saying, Herod's trying to kill you. You need to leave and get out of here and just get away. 
And Jesus says to them, go and tell that fox, go and tell that fox, Herod, I've got work to do. I will complete my work and then I will move on. There's a bit of, I think, sarcasm in his voice when he says, go and tell that fox. Telling these Pharisees who are pretending in some sense to know the inside going on of the courts. Maybe they've heard rumors, but I know earlier in the Gospels it speaks of with the death of John the Baptist and Herod hearing about Jesus, him becoming very frightened, him becoming very curious, him seeing in Jesus a return of John the Baptist and him becoming very curious about that. He sees the return of John, the man that he killed, and yet there's never any mention earlier of his desire to put him to death as well. But maybe that's evolved. Maybe he does desire to put Jesus to death, but Jesus is not giving in. He continues to roll forward toward Jerusalem. That despite what these Pharisees may tell him, Jesus is going to go about his work of curing, of bringing healing, of preaching, casting out demons. For today and tomorrow and the third day, he will finish his work. He will accomplish it. And he'll keep going to Jerusalem because it's not right for a prophet to perish away from Jerusalem. Once again, knowing he goes to die. And that these Pharisees are trying to push Jesus out of their territory. They don't want to hear any more about Jesus. They don't want to be in his presence anymore. But yet they would still be able to claim, well, we, we heard you in the streets. We saw you preaching. We saw you healing people. We even sat down and had a meal with you sometimes. But yet they are pushing him away, trying to get him out of their territory, trying to get away from him so that what he says will no longer afflict them or affect them. And so Jesus continues moving toward Jerusalem. And nonetheless, even with this feigned warning, this trying to get rid of Jesus, he still gives a compassionate plea to the people. To bring us all back to Jesus, he says, I'll go on my way. And then he begins weeping for Jerusalem. This verse is 34 and 35. We're not sure if Jesus said it here at this very moment or if Luke is just simply lifting what Jesus said there during Passion Week about Jerusalem and placing it here because it was an appropriate location. As Jesus is talking about perishing away from Jerusalem, that that's not right. But nonetheless, it is a compassionate plea toward the people, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing Jesus continues to have compassion on these people who push him away, who don't want to strive through the narrow door yet. He continues to call out to them like a mother hen trying to get her brood to come, to get her chicks to come to her that she might rescue them, that she might give them safety and comfort. This is truly a tender picture. If you've ever raised chickens, you might know it, or any kind of fowl. It's true across the board with many fowl of this mother hen clucking to bring them away from both explicit and implicit implicit dangers. And when she sees something that's not right, she will cluck and call her hens, call her chicks to herself, and they are to come. And she will carry them to safety and lead them to safety and sit down around them with her wings to keep them safe, whether it's a rogue animal that gets into the pen. Her action will not save her, but it may save her children. Or a strong storm with wintry blusts blowing through, She'll gather her chicks up under her wings to give them warmth and comfort to survive the onslaught. I read one story of, of 
hens being found charred after a fire on the farm, but the chicks being safe underneath the hen, her dying to preserve their lives. But if the chick refuses, if the chick runs away, what can she do when the danger is there? She continues to protect those who came and has to abandon the one who won't come when the time finally arrives, when the danger is fully there. She remains to protect those who answered. And so the Jews have refused so often to hear the compassionate plea of Jesus to come, to be saved, to hear the salvation that God is making in their midst. And so in that sense, their house becomes desolate. They are abandoned in many ways, but not completely. Because he gives a note of hope here at the end of verse 35. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's when they will see Jesus again. When the people proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because in their saying that, they are acknowledging Jesus is the Messiah. They're acknowledging that he is the one who has died for their sins. And so when they bless this one who comes in the name of the Lord, they receive his blessing upon themselves. Because they have acknowledged that Jesus comes in the name of Yahweh. The Jews and the people of today, ourselves, we can't know salvation until we acknowledge who Jesus is. That we acknowledge that he is the Savior. He is the one who brings us salvation. And this blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's part of our Eucharistic prayer. Every week we say that during the Sanctus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we, many of us will cross ourselves in that moment to remind us of this compassionate plea of salvation that has come upon us. The crossing of ourselves is a remembrance of our baptisms. And in that baptism, we were laid hold of by Yahweh and united to Christ and united to the body of Christ. And so to say and to cross ourselves in the midst of saying blessed is he is to say that Jesus is the one who has come to save us. He is the one that we have been united to in baptism. He is the one who has taken our sins from us by dying upon the cross and forgiving us. And so we cross ourselves at that statement during the liturgy. Blessed is he who comes. Because we are claiming Jesus in that moment. We are claiming him as the one who has saved us and redeemed us and made us clean. Who has given us strength to strive forward. Who has enabled us by his grace to go out and do all that he calls us to do. So we remember our baptism. We remember our faith. But most of all, we remember that Jesus is the one who is blessed. He is the one who has truly come for us in the name of the Lord. And because he has come, we can strive and we can be changed and we can be transformed and shaped into the kind of people who can then resist and fight and push back against our very sin nature that can push back against the devil, that can push back against the broken world. But as we're striving, we become the kind of people who are also like Jesus, who are compassionate toward those who are trapped in their sin, toward those who have been deceived by their sin. And we can bring them near and call out to them and bring them the healing of Jesus. As we go out and cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We are striving through that narrow door to make Jesus ours, and in that to make Jesus known to others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.